All right, let's go ahead and bow as we get ready to open the Word. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you in song. We ask you now to bless this time as we worship you in the message. And show us what you would want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the, uh, for the, at the pa- Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem and after the, custom of the, after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they were returning, the child Jesus re- tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary uh, and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to be in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they found him not, they turned back again into Jerusalem to seek him, And it came to pass, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why have you dealt this way with us? Behold, your father and I have sought you sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spoke unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is one of these very interesting things. People like to look at this and say, when did Jesus know that he was God? And the Bible doesn't tell us. (laughs) This is as close as we get to him knowing who he is and we and we don't know we know that he doesn't start ministry until he's about 30 years old and the reason for that is no jewish no no jewish uh, person would have listened to him he was too young to teach Uh, and this is something that happens even in our world have you ever sat in a class and looked at somebody and go that's a kid teaching this class how can i how can i learn anything from them though that was what what jesus had to wait to get to that age 30 age 30 was when you could take the title rabbi and being able to teach this event tells us, though, that he could have taught much earlier. All right? And we're just going to kind of look at this a little bit. The very first thing it was said is that his parents went to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Now, if you're not aware of what that means, is there's three feasts that the, every male, Jewish male, had to go to the temple for. One was Passover, the other one was First Fruits, and the other one was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. So this means that every year, the whole family went down to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, Joseph, being a righteous man, probably went by himself to Yom Kippur because that would have been, you know, two, days, two times. But it's kind of interesting that Mary went for Passover. Now, there is a, a group of people who believe that the custom was, even though men were required to go, that the women oftentimes went to Passover to celebrate celebrate but not necessarily the other holidays and this kind of bears out because we see uh, Hannah the mother of Samuel going to Jerusalem every year for the or not to Jerusalem to Shiloh at that time where the tabernacle was for worship so we have this idea that the women went for Passover but they didn't have to go to all three events that was celebrated and we see here the righteousness of the family that Jesus was being raised in. Uh, 
This leads us to believe that Joseph knew the scriptures somewhat. He, he was a righteous man. He probably was well-respected in his, in his synagogue and was the father to teach Jesus the word, which he is the word, so it's, kind of, it's always questionable you know, how much did he know, how much did he need to be taught. He, raised, he was 100% God, so he didn't need to be taught, but he was 100% human, so he needed to be taught. Where we draw that line, we don't know. And we're not going to answer that today, but you're going to have that thrown out to you at various times when people go, well, when did Jesus know that he was God? Don't know. We do know when he went to Jerusalem, he said, I had to be about my father's business. So at that point, he knew something. But what, to, to what degree, we don't know. Um, and it's kind of interesting. It says he was 12 years old, which is a very key point in here because 12 years old is the age that the Jewish boy was treated as a adult. Now, that didn't mean he got kicked out of home and, and all of that. But at age 12, they could be charged as an adult for crimes. They were responsible for all their activities. They were expected to get out and be an apprentice and learn how to, how to do a job. So at age 12, he was theoretically an adult. And he goes to Jerusalem with his parents to, to go for Passover. And Mary and Joseph forget Jesus. <laughs> Now, we kind of think, well, how in the world could Mary and Joseph have forgot Jesus? Well, any of us who have been a parent have, have probably at least one time where we've at least left our child in, the, in a different aisle of a store. I've heard people say they actually got into a car thinking their kid was sleeping in the back seat at a, at a gas stop. The kid got up, went to the bathroom, and they left the kid. Uh, so we look at here, they left Jesus behind. Now, I want to give a little bit of defense for this. You know, Jesus was the perfect child. He had never disobeyed. He had never been where he wasn't supposed to be. So I can almost picture them going out. You know, Jesus is supposed to be in the caravan with them. They expect him to be in the caravan with them because he's always been where he is expected to be. He's never been disobedient. And in this case, he's not being disobedient. He is legally an adult and he's doing his father's business and he stays in Jerusalem but you can imagine the panic when you get out a day's journey which means you went out 10 to 15 miles from Jerusalem you've set up camp and then you go to find your son and you kind of figured he was out with the other boys you know having a good time in the camp helping helping somebody else with their travels and you can't find him compound that with the fact that you know that you have the Messiah as your child. <laughs> it would be bad enough just losing your kid. But now you've lost God's kid <laughs> as well. And this is what they said when they see Jesus. We've been looking for you sorrowing. And that's really not a strong enough word. It is with great anguish. <laughs> you know, we've lost our son. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where he's at. And we've got to go back all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know, and it doesn't really tell us, did they start that night, which was very dangerous, or did they wait till the next morning to go see him? I think with the anxiety of a parent, they probably braved the roads and the, and the bandits that night. And it says that they searched all over Jerusalem for three days. Now, I don't know how you'd feel, but I know that I would be kind of panicking trying to find my kid for three days. And Jerusalem was a very large city. Who knew where he could possibly be in all that city? 
their family lived in Bethlehem. If you'd have been in Bethlehem, they would have just checked their family out, out in Bethlehem, but they're in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of people living in Jerusalem at that time. And their 12-year-old son is missing. They don't know, has he been kidnapped? Has he been taken by the Romans? Has he, has he been, you know, what's happening? You've got to picture this. Never in 12 years had Jesus been disobedient to them. They always knew where he was. They always knew what he was going to do. And he was always, he was always doing what was right. And now there's this idea that he's missing. And they finally come to the temple, it says. And I think this is very interesting that when you look at this, after three days, which I think is a picture of the resurrection, they find Jesus and they find him in the temple of all places. And it says he was sitting with the doctors. Now these aren't physicians. These are the greatest of the rabbis. He's, he's sitting in Jerusalem with the rabbis, listening to what they say, asking questions. And it says they were amazed. Have you ever talked to somebody, especially a young person, and they know so much about the Bible that you're just amazed at how much they know and, and, and how far they're going and everything? It's, it's a wonderful thing when you get somebody who's been well-trained in the Bible. Jesus is sitting with them. He's listening to what they have to say and then asking them very pointed questions. And his comments are such that the people are going, where did he learn? all of this. Now, and their thought process is where we, we've been studying all our life and he has not been sitting in our classes. <laughs> he has not been here in Jerusalem listening to us teach. We have, not, we have not brought him in to instruct him. Where did this one get all these knowledge? And the way they were talking about is that they were astounded by his knowledge, which would just mean they were put off their, off their footing. They really, what he was saying was so far advanced that they weren't even understanding. And these guys were the, you know, we would say the professors. You know, they were the ones that taught the, taught the school. And they're going, he is blowing our minds <laughs> in, in today's English. You know, what he knows, what he's saying, how he's saying it. Why? Well, number one, he is the word. I think even at age 12, he knew more about the Bible than anybody else out there because I think he really did start to know by 12 years old, he definitely knew who he was. Because he's going to tell Mary and Joseph, I had to be about my father's business. And he's telling that, and the only father he's known up to this point is Joseph, which means he should be learning to be a carpenter. And he's going, no, I had to be here to be about my father's business. My father's business was to tell people about the Word of God. And it helped them explain it. One of the things that we need to do as Christians is get to know God's word. The scripture in, in Psalms tells us, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And another one says, you know, how do we know our way? By taking heed to God's word. We need to know his word. We need to memorize it. We need to know it beyond just memorizing it. You know, and I've shared with you, when I was in my teens, I memorized lots of verses. We memorized them for Sunday school, memorized them for outreach programs, memorized them for all kinds of things. You know what? It hasn't been until about the last 15 or 20 years, though, that those verses have really started to mean something more than just a memorized verse. In those early days, it was just a matter of memorizing verses so I could, you know, look good amongst everybody and, and say the verses. But, you know, how many times do we think about the verses that we know? 
How much do we think about the Bible that when we're reading it? Is it just an exercise to get through, or are we thinking about what does this mean? How does it apply to my life? Jesus was able to sit down with the doctors of religion and say, this is God's word. This is how it applies. And Jesus applied the questioning. Now, we don't notice that so much, but you understand that a rabbi taught by questioning. They would ask a question, listen to people's answers, and then give them back an answer in response to where they were at. Jesus does this all through the scriptures. People will ask him questions, and you'll, you'll see him automatically ask a question in return. And then they would say something, and then he would then teach. It's a good way to teach. And I don't, I don't remember how many of you with your kids have ever had a time when your kid asked you a question and you answered the wrong question. You know, you thought they were saying one thing, and you answered what you thought they were saying, and you ended up totally answering the wrong question for them. It's real easy when somebody doesn't know how to frame a question to answer the wrong, to answer the wrong question. Uh, a doctor will ask you, how do you feel? And I and I'd always tell my doctor, I feel good, because that's all I'm going in for reports. And if the, if, he, if the doctor will actually ask me some questions, and they're going, well, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. I'm going, well, it is for me. It's the way I always am. So it, you know, to me, it's normal. Have you ever been in a place where you just didn't know the question to even ask? You know, maybe it'd even be for a Bible question. You just don't know how to ask the question. Well, this is a place where questions can come back. You ask a question and find out what the answer is that you need. Because somebody can answer your question, give you a very factual, good answer, but if it's not what you were looking for, it didn't mean a whole lot. And this is very important for us. Jesus knew the Word of God. Now, had he been taught part of it by Joseph? Probably. Had he known it from God? Definitely. God was his father. He was God. How much of the Bible did he know just because he was the author of it? We don't know. You know and this is a kind of interesting place, you know, because he is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. How much of the scripture did he have to learn and how much did he just know? Yeah, that has been debated in theological circles all over the world, and I'm not going to even go there. He was God. I believe that he had been taught much of it by 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 the Father directly, and the fact that he was God. Did he know it from the moment that he was born? I don't know. Definitely by age 12, he knew something about who he was and what he was doing, and had a good handle on the Word of God. And this is important for us, that we learn the Word of God not as a mental exercise, but as a living exercise. If we don't live out the Word of God, it really is not doing us any good. When God tells us to do something, we need to obey. When he teaches us how to live, we need to be obedient to that. Because if, if I can quote you the, the Ten Commandments off the top of my head and I rattle them right off, but I don't live them, have I really learned anything? I have a lot of knowledge, but I'm not applying it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths is a very powerful scripture. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of us may know his word, but yet we have this tendency to live on our own understanding. God, you know, you want me to do what? Uh-uh, God, you know, that's not a really smart thing to do because, you know, those guys over there, they're, 
They're not going to like it if I do that. And God says, I don't care what they like or not. I told you to do this. But yet, many times, we will try to do things on our own understanding. We are living in a day and time where being a Christian is not an acceptable lifestyle to the world. And this is kind of a strange thing for us because we look at it and say, God, you have morals, you have righteousness standards, you have all these things, and when we live the way Christ wants us to live, then we are treating people right and things get better. But we have a world that says, don't judge me. Don't, don't tell me that what I'm doing is against God's standards. And if you open your mouth, you're going to get attacked. In some places, you might even lose your job. At my work, I have to be careful what I say and who I say it to do because of their standards are this world's standards. So I only answer questions when they're directed to me, and then I'll answer them the way, I want, the way God wants them answered when they're asked. If somebody asks me what I think about a certain topic, I'm, I'm not going to lie to them. I'm going to tell them. And at some point, I'll probably end up getting fired. Because if you're against homosexuality, you're against adultery, you're against fornication, you're against people stealing, pretty much people look at you as if you're weird. Now, when I look at it, God, you make a very strong stance for all of these things, and yet people have no problem with it. God is against murder, and yet we have people committing murder legally all the time with, with both abortion and with the newest one, euthanasia, euthanasia activities, and then we get into many of the states allowing you to kill the old people so they don't eat up the inheritance. You know, and those things are legal, even though God calls them killing. We need to be careful because our stance is going to be not accepted by the world. And as we get closer and closer to the end days, it's going to get worse and worse. Noah's day, people did what was right in their own eyes. During the period of the judges, people did what was right in their own eyes, which meant they did evil. And we're seeing more and more evil in our generation. How, how far we have to go before we're at the days of Noah, I don't know. It's getting bad. Is it really at the days of Noah yet? I don't know. How close do we have to get to that before God takes us home? I don't know. But you know one thing I do get excited about? Every day that it gets worse is a day closer to the return of Jesus. You know, and we need to keep that in mind. When the world gets darker and darker, we're getting closer to the return of Jesus. Now, we need to really let that sink in. We want everything to be all nice, fun, and happy, and sunshine, and roses, and God, just give me a wonderful time. It's not what he promised. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. They hated Jesus so much they put him on a cross. And he was perfect. They hate us as well. And it's going to only get worse as the darkness increases. How do we get through? We put our trust in Jesus. With him, he gives us a peace that passes understanding. Why? Because we know that our ultimate goal is heaven. No matter how bad this world gets, this is not home. Now, and we need to keep our mind focused on that. This is not home. 
When we get to heaven, we're not even going to care about what we went through here. Heaven will be so wonderful that we're not going to be thinking about what we went through down here. Now, I hear people all the time saying, well, I know mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa. They're, they're up in heaven looking down on us, and I'm looking at them going, why in the world would they do that? They are looking at Jesus. They are looking at the Father. I don't think they're thinking about us in any way, shape, or form. They are looking at the one who redeemed them, the one that bought them, the one that they put into heaven by being bought. And you think about this, um, if you think back to your day when you got married, I don't know whether the, the bride notices anybody else other than her husband and, and up in front or not. But you know, I know when I was up front, there was only one person I was paying attention to in that entire ceremony. And she was coming down in a white dress. <laughs> and other than that, I was oblivious to everybody else in that ceremony. I knew there were people there. Yes, I was aware of people. But I want to take that and expand that to when we get to heaven, there's only one person we're going to be looking for and looking at. That's going to be our Savior who paid the price for us to be there. We won't be thinking about anything else. We'll be looking at him. So when things are going bad in here and it gets dark in this lifetime and we have all kinds of struggles, remember, you're in the waiting room. You're waiting in, waiting in the waiting room for the, for the anthem to play to come down the aisle and see Jesus. And once you see him, your eyes won't be anywhere else. I, I think the, the first time I see Jesus, I'll probably be spending 10 or 20,000 years, maybe a couple million years, just looking at him. And then I'll maybe pay attention to everybody else that's up there. And I don't think anybody else is really that far off if you think about it. What is our ultimate goal? I want to see Jesus. When I think about all that he did to buy my, to buy my soul and your soul, he went to the cross and became sin so that we could go to heaven. That is something amazing. Is there any one of us that would be making the ultimate payment for somebody else to get the benefit? Not likely. It takes great love for that. And Jesus did it for the world. And it wasn't even a world that liked him. The world hated him. Now, most of us might do something like that for our kids or, or a real close friend, but would you do it for an enemy? Would you sacrifice yourself for an enemy? This is what we are called to do. Jesus said that you've heard it said that you are to love one another, and he goes, and do good to people. He goes, I tell you to do it to your enemy. Love your enemy. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Now, and we in our human being, our human state should say, well, God, you know, that person deserves all the bad that could happen to you. I don't want to do anything good to them. And God is saying, your love will draw them to him. And First John, it says, we love him because he first loved us. We would not love God if he didn't love us first. He loved us so much, number one, he created us. Number two, he sent Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. 
I hope you really understand the power of that forgiveness. God loved us while we were sinners and enemies. He asks us to do the same to others. Do you realize that what brings more people to God is seeing true love and acceptance? That people go, I think they actually love me. They actually care. Now their first thoughts when they're being shown love is what does this person want? Because that's the world's way. You're nice to somebody if you want something. So when we as Christians are nice and loving and, and do things for people, their first thought is what do they want in return? When are they going to ask for something in return? And you know what? If we're truly doing it for God's reason, we're not looking for it. The one thing we do want to see them do is come to Christ. Once they come to Christ, their whole life will be turned upside down. But that's not our goal. We want to see them make it into heaven. Jesus turned to his parents and said, I had to be about my father's business. And it says that Mary and Joseph did not understand. And I don't know how well this was. This is 12 years after a virgin birth. 12 years after the gift, or 10 years after the gift from the, from the Magi. And 10 year, 12 years after the visit of the shepherds. How much do we forget after just a few years? Uh, and this is something that is very important for us. It is so easy for us as humans to forget. And what usually happens is we look back at the good old days, whatever the good old days are for, for each individual in here, we look back at the good old days when everything was perfect. And you know, in our minds it was perfect, except when we were living it. When we were living it, we recognized all the problems, all the, all the negatives, and we listened to other people talk about the good old days. And we're going, well, one day I might get there. One of the gifts that God has given human beings is the ability to forget the past and remember the good. And this is something that we need to be able to do on one side, keeps us sane. If, if we always remembered the bad things that always happened to us, we'd be in trouble. We'd be depressed. And this is the important thing. When we come to Christ, he makes us a new creation, a new life. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is one of the greatest things that God can do to us. He says, you get to start all over. You have been whatever sin it was that you were doing, and now you are a new creation. You, do not, you are not bound by that sin. This is why the world does not understand, because they do not separate the person from what they do. Somebody is a thief, and they cannot be separated from it. And in our case, we say they are a thief because they steal, but they don't have to be a thief. They can get over it, but the world says you're, what you are is what you are. And they have trouble trying to split it up. So when they hear a Christian say something like, hate the, uh, love, the, love the sinner and hate the sin, they don't understand because they cannot make that distinction. We are called to see people as people and their actions as something different. And if we can, the better we get at that, the more we can minister to people because we start looking beyond what they do and look at them as a lost soul. We are born into this world sinners. We are born captive to sin. Before Christ comes in with himself and the Holy Spirit, we have no power to break free of the captivity of sin. We are prisoners to sin. 
Jesus died on the cross so that we can have victory. And it's not my victory. I can, I can get self-control and I can stay away from a sin for a while. But have you ever tried to do it under self-control and stay away from a sin? Eventually, that sin trips you up and, and, and makes you lose control. But we're a new creation. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We sang from the inside out. It literally is what happened. God comes into us and consumes us from the inside out. I am not making changes in my life to make people think that I am different. I am different because of the changes inside me that God has done so that I now bring God out of my life. And this is true for each one of us. If God is truly inside you, he makes the changes and he comes out of you. And this is the beauty of being a Christian. My change is not me trying to, trying to please God. It's me being crucified and letting God live out of me. This is the wonderful thing. And Jesus is in Jerusalem talking to these people, showing them, expounding things that they don't understand. And it says very interestingly in here, they didn't understand what he said and in verse 51. And it says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. Now this word subject is a very interesting word. It is a word that most people in the Bible do not like. Because it is the same exact words that say in, in Ephesians, wife, submit yourself, subject yourself to your husband or submit yourself to your husband. It's the same exact Greek word. Jesus submitted himself to Mary and Joseph. As mother, as mom and dad, he goes, okay, I'm going back with you. I'm, I'm supposed to be, I got to start working on my father's business, but I'm going to stay submitted. How hard is it for us to stay submitted? All right. Now, wives hate this word because it gets hammered on them. But you know, Jesus was submitted to his parents. Children are supposed to be submitted to their, to their parents. We as employees are supposed to be submitted to our bosses. Too many people are going, uh-uh, not, not going to happen. I'm not going to do things the way they want it done because my way is better. Now, your way may or may not be better. It really doesn't matter. If the boss told you to do something, you get, you get it done. Now, if you have a good boss, you might be able to talk to him and say, well, do you think this might work, work better? And there may be legitimate reasons why you can't or can't do what, what you're suggesting. But, you know, we have to be ready to be submitted. I know a gentleman that he gets in trouble with his boss all the time because he's right and his boss is wrong. And I pointed out to him, I go, the Bible doesn't say that you submit only when the boss is right. You know, we don't submit only when our parents are right. We don't submit only when our, when our spouse is right. God says, stay submitted. Now, does that mean we go out and do things that are wrong just because they told us no? There's a whole other whole, whole side to that. If we're being told to do something illegal, then no, we don't do it. And that's going to still have consequences. The disciples kept getting told, don't, tell, don't talk about Jesus in Jesus' name. And they kept going, we have to obey God rather than men. Now, the important point that most Christians forget when they say that statement is they also, the disciples then submitted to being beat for their disobedience. They obeyed God, but they broke the rules of man and they still took the punishment that man gave them for their disobedience. 
So if you're going to claim, I'm going to be obeying God rather than men, then don't be surprised when you have to, have to take the punishment for disobedience. This is coming to us as, again as we're looking at the end of the days. There's going to be times when we're going to be taking punishment because we are going to obey God rather than man. We're going to do what is righteous and call out unrighteousness and they're going to go, no, you can't have that. You're, you're, that's not going to happen. Many people will lose their jobs. Many people will lose respect because they stand for God. Jesus was submitted. Submission has nothing to do with with who you are as a person, whether you're smarter than the person that you're supposed to be submitted to or not. Now, somebody who's smart that's in charge will listen to the people below them and get some advice and take some advice, and then, but they still have to make the decision. The person who's in charge is the one that makes the decision. They're going to be responsible for the decision. Now, and it's very important. Jesus submitted. He went back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph. He's going to stay with them for another 18 years. In submission and we don't know that he does anything during that 18 years there's no scripture that gives us any information about him until he's 30 years old I don't think that he did nothing I believe he spoke he, you know he spoke up and he probably taught in the synagogue a little bit uh, he didn't teach all the controversial stuff that was going to get him in trouble later on because nobody's listening to somebody that's under 30 but they're going to listen to him and say wow when he speaks he speaks with great knowledge. And it's very important, you know, our job as parents is to teach our kids the word of God so that they will get a good start. It's been amazing to me as my kids have moved out on their own and they're in different churches and every once in a while they'll call me back up and they'll say, wow, dad, I didn't realize I learned so much growing up. Because we didn't sit down and have Bible studies every night of the week and all that, but we talked about God a lot. We sang scripture songs in the car when we drove places. We applied God's word to many situations. Yeah. I did to them mostly what my dad did to me. Anytime there was a question, we got up the Bible out and said, what does God say? Now, when you're a kid, the last thing you want to do is have your parent teach you from the Bible especially if you're wanting to honor God, like I did. It's like, okay, I can't argue with this. <laughs> this. This isn't dad or mom speaking. This is what God says. But you know, it has great impact because are we looking at what God says for our situations? I can't tell you how many times I've seen bad counsel from quote-unquote Christians. Well, you know what? If... This is what I would do if I was in your situation. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. You know, and this is very critical for us. Are we looking at what God says? Are we looking at keeping him first in our life? Many times doing what God says seems very strange to us as human beings. You know, and we're going, God, that, that, how, how could you want me to do that? You know, don't walk in your own understanding. And it says during those 18 years that Jesus increased in wisdom, and that's his knowledge, applied knowledge, stature. It's just plain, he grew up. He grew up from a 12-year-old boy to a man. Most likely working in the shop with, with Joseph, which means in those days he got to be a very strong man. 
because carpenters in those days would go cut down the tree, drag the tree back, and then plane it by hand. Not by the, not by the, the electric saws and hydroelectric saws and everything that we have today to help make your job easy. So he learned and grew. And he grew in favor. Now, I don't believe that he actually grew in favor directly with the Father because he was God, he was his son. But that still means that even though you can have somebody who's obedient and good, the more they're being obedient and the more they're learning, the more you have favor toward them. So the more Jesus learned and the more he was being obedient, even though he'd always been obedient, he hadn't broken any rules, he was now becoming more favored by people. Yeah. And you can picture, you know, I don't know what kind of carpenter Jesus would be. Now, there's nothing sinful in learning how to, how to make, the, make the stuff, you know, and I'm sure his first things that he made were not perfect, even though he's God. Because there was nothing sinful in not being able to nail two pieces of wood together. And he had had to learn how to nail two pieces of wood together. But I'm always also pretty sure that by the time he was 30 and he was really starting to know who he was, those, what he made was awfully good. Because he would have always put his best into what he did. How many times do we not put our best into everything that we do? You know, we're tired. It's been a long day. I just want to get this day over with. And I want to get this job over with. And we shortchange it. We don't necessarily do anything wrong. We just don't give it our all. You know, we've all been there, I know. I know I've been there more than once. Yeah, just want to get this day over with. Get, get, get done with it. Jesus was not that type of person. He gave his best in all that he did. Now his best would irritate people. I don't know, how many of you have been in a job where you worked at your best and you irritated all the other workers? Uh, I've done that. I've had two jobs where I did that and they kept telling me, slow down, don't do as much, you're making us look bad. And I'm going, well, maybe you need to step up your game. You know, get into union shops, a lot of times you're looked at, you know, you're making the rest of us look really bad because you're working. But, you know, what is our attitude? Are we out to do the best we can? Are we people of integrity? When we tell somebody something is going to be done, are we going to make sure that it gets done and get it done right? Or are we going to get it done as lightly and as little as possible? The standard God gives us, we're to work as unto God. That's a pretty high standard when you think about it. You know, if I'm working to man, I might get away with not doing a whole lot because their eyes aren't on me. All I got to do is enough to make sure I get my numbers in place and my, and my productivity in place. But if I'm really working to God, God sees me all the time, and his standards are pretty high. To reach up to his standards, number one, we're never going to get there. But he's saying, I'm challenging you. How many times have we shared the gospel with people? Let's make it easy for you. In all of 2020, <laughs> I'm not even going to ask you about the last week. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody? How many times have you asked God to show you something and enlighten your eyes? We need to put our focus on God in a stronger way. And even if you think I'm really there, then you're not. One of the things I keep learning is the closer I get to God, the more he wants. Never going to get to meet God's standards while I walk on this world. 
all the time. I go forward, and I go forward, and I go forward, and I go, good. all right, God, I finally got this. And he goes, okay, good, now go to this one. He's, you know, he's almost like all the coaches that I ever had playing sports. You never fully arrived. Every time you learned how to do something, they go, okay, you're doing that very well now. Do this. And he almost wanted to say, are you ever happy? And you know, on one side, their job is to push us to the next level. That's their job. Push us to the next level. God is always going to push us to the next level. Every time we think we've gotten a certain sin out of our life, God will take it to the next level. Every time we start thinking we've got our Christian walk together, he'll say, now we'll take you to the next level. The bad news is he doesn't usually give us long on the step to get excited about the step we reached before he's pushing us to the next one. Because his goal for us is much higher than our goal for ourselves. How much do we understand God? How much do we know about God? Not enough. I've said this over and over again. Whatever you think you know about God, you don't know enough. You know, how big is God? How strong is God? You know, all of us have some idea of how strong we think God is. And we'll go, well, he's all powerful. Well, that's great, but we still, in our, in our finite mind, we put some limit on, on all powerful. And, we, and God will push us to that point where, we, where we're seeing what we think is all powerful. He says, uh, now you guys don't even know, but let's take you, this is how powerful I am. You know, I am more powerful. How loving is God? Well, God loves the entire world. So much that he died for our sins. But if that's all that you know about his love, you don't know his love very well. His love is so much deeper than that. How much forgiveness does God have? You know, all these different questions I'm putting out to us, you know, whatever you think about God and whatever those answers are, you're too small. I don't care how big your, your thought process is. I've been thinking about this for, for going on 50 years, and I'm still, and I have a bigger thought on all of this than most people, and I'm still too small, and God shows me all the time, you don't understand me at all. You don't understand because he is eternal. He is infinite. He has infinite love. He has infinite forgiveness. He has infinite strength. We as human beings don't understand infinity. We can't. It's beyond our comprehension. We talk about infinity. We, we talk about big numbers. You know, our, our government talks about be, you know, just giving a trillion dollars in debt. Now, all, this, all these last 10 years, we've been signing trillion-dollar debt bills over and over and over again. A trillion dollars is something this country is never paying back. We can't even comprehend it, and yet we hear that term all the time. A trillion, a trillion. It's funny when we sing these old songs when they say 10,000 years. Do you realize that in the 1800s when they sang 10,000, that was a big number? Some of the older people in this room might go, yeah, 10,000 used to be a big number. You know, now we don't think in terms of 10,000 being a big number at all. We, but we still don't even understand the numbers that we're throwing around. God is infinite above anything that we can understand. Get to know him. I'm going to challenge us in this year, let's get to know God deeper, more intimately. And just take wherever you're at now and ask God to make that look like it was nothing as he goes further and takes you deeper. 
He wants us to learn love. He wants us to learn forgiveness. He wants us to learn what his power is. Most of the time we hold God back because we don't look at how powerful he is. We live in an age where science and reason is everything and we try to downplay miracles. God is still a God of miracles. He wants to work miracles, he wants to do miracles, but how much do we hold him back? How many of us, when we get sick, the first thing we do is think about running to the doctor? And there's a good, I'm not saying that doctors are bad, but do we spend any time looking and saying, God, can you heal? Can you do something? People get in trouble financially, and what's the first thing they do? They go out and get a loan. Let me go get a consolidation loan. I'll put everything all in one big loan, and I'll save money, and I'll get back into debt again. It's what happens all the time. We consolidate, we get into more debt. But do we spend any time saying, God, I need your help. I need your help to get out of this. Do we look to God first, or is he the last resort? We even have a saying, I've tried everything out, so I might as well pray, right? What a worldly, worldly attitude. God wants us to be praying first and then do all that we can do and watch him work. It is a wonderful thing when we go to God first, then he opens our eyes on what we can do and then what will be his part. Sometimes, and I've said this, sometimes his part is to give us great opportunities to work. When I was walking by faith, many of my, many of my uh, benefits from God came from hard work. He'd, put jo- he'd drop jobs into my lap. And I had to go do some work. Other times, he'd just bring a gift. But God is not looking at making us lazy and dependent on others. He wants us to be able to go out and be dependent on him But being dependent on him shows sometimes hard work. And we need to be ready for those things and ready to stand up and grow in wisdom, stature, and in favor with people. Because how many of you know somebody that every time you see them, you just know they're going to be asking for something? Don't raise your hands. But we all know know somebody out there, and heaven help you if you're the person that's always the one out there that, that people are looking at that. But you know, we all have somebody we're going, oh no, it's them again. I wonder what they need now. That is not the way God wants us to look as Christians. He wants us to be able to be somebody that helps and helps others. That shows the blessing of God. When I was in Baltimore, there was this group that every year they went out on the street corners with and begged money for, to help their mission. I'm going, what are these people telling the entire city of Baltimore about their God? My God is so impotent that I've got to come out to the street corners and beg. God is not like that. He is somebody that meets our needs. And he will meet all of our needs. And he wants to meet our needs. And we need to have a God that we know we can trust. And again, sometimes that, those needs will come through hard work and he'll pop down some job for us to do. Other times he will just say, here's your gift. Hopefully you've all had those times and you've just been, here's your gift. And I'm sure there's many times when you've said, you've said here's your job. <laughs> here's a job for you to do. 
The problem is a lot of times we're going, well, I prayed so I don't need to take this job because God's going to meet my need. Well, that job wasn't God meeting your need. Now, so be careful. Be careful to take advantage of anything that God puts in your path. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your care. We ask you to be with us. Teach us, Lord, to trust you more with each passing day. Teach us to follow you in all that we do. Help us to grow and follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.